Hello and welcome to Ozpol Explained. As always, I'm your curly-haired ginger host with the beard, David, and today I'll be going over the basics of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. What is it? How does it work? What is a referendum and why is that important for this? Where did this idea come from? Basically, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament would be a group of elected Indigenous people who give advice to Parliament to help it better understand its decisions and how they'll impact Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's an advisory body, basically. The idea is twofold. First, create Chapter 9 of the Constitution to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the First Nations people of Australia. That's not just a symbolic recognition of Australia's history, the idea is then to create the voice, which aims to provide a practical, formal way to empower the voices and democratic participation of Indigenous people in shaping policy that impacts their lives. If successful, the voice will then be able to communicate with Parliament and the Executive Government to give advice on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. The voice's structure, functions, powers and procedures can be altered by Parliament over time through legislation. Now, to put this in the Constitution, there first needs to be a referendum, which is a public vote for Australian voters to decide if it should or should not happen. So let's break that all down and help you understand what the idea is so you can better understand if you think it's a good idea or not. How you vote and why is entirely up to you. I'm not going to tell you to vote either way. Now, don't get confused by the idea that these Indigenous people being elected is similar to being a member of Parliament. The members of The Voice are not a bunch of politicians or a third chamber. That's not how it works at all. It's not going to be able to override the decisions of Parliament or make its own laws. That's just not possible. We're not altering the Constitution to allow that. But it can provide advice which leads to changes in those laws. Advisory bodies are usually either, you know, elected or appointed by the government. In this case, it's an elected body, which means Indigenous members of the community will collectively choose who represents them. That's what making representations means. While Indigenous people can get elected to Parliament already, they don't represent all Indigenous people or even a broad selection of them. They would represent their electorates and everyone in them. Indigenous people don't make up a large amount of the population to really swing election margins. So the idea is to create a broad and representative body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders across Australia to ensure that there is a dedicated and formal way for them to be able to communicate effectively about issues relating to their community, culture, country and lives, be that, you know, preservation of languages, sacred and cultural sites, figuring out how best to support local indigenous community organisations, closing the gap on like health, justice, education and life expectancy, and addressing issues to do with the systemic problems created by the trauma of decades of the stolen generations. The Voice would be able to write reports and provide perspective and input in a way that assists Parliament in creating better legislation. That means that The Voice won't be commenting on every single piece of legislation and Parliament is able to debate and pass a law without the voice having its say. It won't be able to interfere. 
Here's the thing though, advisory bodies are actually a common way for Parliament to help itself understand how legislation will have an impact on different parts of the community. Members of Parliament have all sorts of backgrounds to bring forward perspectives and ideas from all across the country to debate and shape the law, but it may surprise you to learn that they are not experts in everything all at once. I know, I too was shocked when Tony Abbott said that no one was the suppository of all knowledge and wisdom. When I say Parliament, I mean a combination of all the elected members across Parliament, not the government. The government is just a subsection of Parliament, it's the party or coalition with a majority in the House of Representatives. It is up to collectively both the House and Senate to shape legislation together. So Parliament does a lot of consulting with different interest groups, industries, communities, departments, etc. and sometimes creates dedicated advisory bodies to give reports on how to improve policy or legislation on that issue. So for example, if Parliament wants to know more about how to address climate change, they can create an advisory body about that, like the Climate Commission, which was created in 2011 under the Labour-Gillard government. And if the government thinks that climate change is not a priority or a big issue, it can abolish that advisory body like the Liberal Abbott government did to the Climate Commission in 2014. Now, we don't need to take the voice to a referendum, it could be created by a piece of legislation, and therefore by extension be abolished like any other advisory body. We know this because it has happened before, multiple times. We actually have had several Indigenous elected advisory bodies over the past 50 years. The first was the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, which was made by the Labour Whitlam government in 1973, only for it to be abolished three years later by the Liberal Fraser government in 1976. This is the basis of the argument in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The idea is that if it is constitutionally protected, it won't be easily just abolished and recreated as a part of the election cycle. The Uluru Statement from the Heart calls for the creation of an Indigenous voice, saying that changes of government lead to the cancellation of policies, programs and investment, which has contributed to the ongoing disadvantage of many Indigenous people, and so putting it in the Constitution provides protection and ensures that it won't be abolished without a lot of public attention and input. Having it in the Constitution not just protects it, but encourages the government of the day to work collaboratively with Indigenous people, instead of considering it a secondary priority. While a change of government doesn't automatically mean Indigenous advisory bodies are abolished, there have been quite a few in the past. Like I said, 1973 the NACC was created under Whitlam, abolished under Malcolm Fraser in 1976, and replaced with the National Aboriginal Conference. The NAC was not directly elected. Then the Labour Hawke government viewed the NAC as ineffective and underfunded, so abolished it in 1985. Then, with an extensive consultation process involving thousands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, or ATSIC, was formed in 1990. The aim was to give Indigenous people actual input on the decision-making process of legislation that affected Indigenous people. Sounds familiar, right? Then after budget cuts, it was abolished by the Liberal Howard government in 2005. Howard had set up the National Indigenous Council a year prior in 2004 to replace it. The NIC lasted until 2008, 
but in 2009 the Labour Rudd government got the Human Rights Commission to develop the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, the Liberal Abbott government cut off its funding and it managed to get by until 2019 when it could no longer function. So that's a basic overview of the trend of the past 50 years. But where did the idea of putting the voice in the constitution come from? In 2015 a referendum council was created to advise the government on recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the constitution, an idea that had been kind of floated even under the Howard government in the 90s when he wanted to introduce a preamble to the constitution. That kind of recognition was only symbolic. He also wanted to put the word mateship in it, but that one didn't really make it through the parliament. The referendum council in 2015 was made up of a mixture of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, and they travelled around Australia talking to over 1200 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives. This was then followed by a First Nations National Constitutional Convention in 2017, and 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders endorsed the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which called for a First Nations voice to be enshrined in the constitution, as well as a treaty and a truth-telling commission to recognise Australia's history of injustice and mistreatment towards Indigenous peoples. So that's the history. But what can and can't the voice do? The voice would be able to independently investigate, examine and produce reports on issues which it can then table. There's literally a table in the middle of the chambers of parliament and people put documents on that like petitions and they're like tabled because what else are you going to call that? When something is tabled it is then a public document meaning you can also access it. Tabling something is both a way to assist parliament in understanding something but also hold the government to account because reports can be tabled on their actions as therefore public for parliament and the people to examine. So the reports by The Voice allow both the parliament and the public to look at it and decide their views on that report and what recommendations should or should not be taken. Now these are just recommendations, they don't control what the government does or doesn't do. So if a report is tabled and the government ignores it, you can decide as a voter if you think that was the best decision or if the government should have acted on that and vote accordingly. It adds to both the parliament's knowledge of how to address issues but also provides you, the public, more information as to how to examine parliament's actions. The voice would be able to make representations to parliament, so that's all elected members, and the executive government, so ministers like prime minister, minister for education, health, etc. You too can make representations by the way, that part of the wording is more about defining its purpose and function, like representations is you represent and communicate a view or group. Now the proposed amendment does say that the parliament can alter the voice's powers in the future, but it's still limited to the constitution. So it's not like parliament can just give it any power whatsoever because that'd be silly. Legislative power rests in the senate, house of representatives and the monarch. The way that the parliament could alter it in the future is to give it better powers to enable it in gathering information, for example. Like similar powers to a parliamentary committee. Committees, by the way, are another way that parliament investigates an issue to improve legislation. They, like advisory bodies, can be created and abolished. Committees can compel people to provide documents or attend committee hearings to better understand 
an issue or to scrutinise a government department or agency. The powers of parliament, for example, have also been altered by legislation. It used to be that members could kick out a member of parliament, like make them no longer elected, if they so wished, a power that was exercised once and then removed in the 80s. So it is possible that, you know, the powers of the voice aren't really to do with its relationship with Parliament at all. It could just be about its internal powers and structure. That's not to say that, like, that will happen. I'm just using it as an example to demonstrate how it could theoretically have its powers altered in the future. The Parliament can't give it powers to interfere with the ordinary functions of Parliament. Only elected members can introduce and vote on bills, and it is ultimately up to those elected members collectively to decide what becomes a law. That's just fundamentally how Parliament works, and we're not changing that because that's laid out in other parts of the Constitution. The voice cannot be given veto power, and if Parliament decides in the future to go against the advice the voice gives, that doesn't allow the voice to take the parliament to court over it, because again, that's neither how the legislative or court process works. This means that the voice is not a third chamber. To call it such would just be a fundamental misunderstanding of what a chamber of parliament is. For some people, this is a positive, because they don't want it to have too much influence or power to override parliament. To other people, this is a negative, because they want it to have more practical power. Again, it's still up to you entirely as to why you vote the way you do, be that yes or no. I'm just here to give you information. Now, it's also important to know that this isn't increasing the legislative powers of the government. This is already something that is defined in section 51 of the Constitution. But let's talk about the composition of the voice. Its composition is determined by legislation and can be altered in the future. To be fair, that's actually pretty normal in the Constitution. There are several things that aren't like specific set models, but just a foundational framework to give Parliament the power to alter and build upon through legislation, including the composition of our own Parliament. The size of the House of Representatives, for example, has doubled since it was originally created. And also originally, it was only six senators per state, and only states. Territories didn't elect any senators until 1975. How we elect members of both chambers has also changed over the years to improve the electoral process and become more inclusive and more representative of the community. So it could be in the future that there's a way that the composition of the voice could be improved, like increasing or decreasing the amount of members in the voice overall to make it more efficient or more effective. They could change the amount of representatives from regional areas, or alter the boundaries of the local areas where members are elected from. This happened for ATSIC, by the way, in the 90s to make it more efficient. That's not to say that all changes will inherently be positive, but any changes to its composition or powers through legislation will have to pass through Parliament collectively, and therefore it's not solely up to the government of the day to decide how to change the voice. Instead, it would require bipartisan support across a majority of members across both chambers for that to change, which, just like the Parliament's actions on 
what to do with those recommendations, you as the voter can examine and decide if you think it was a good or bad change and vote accordingly. The idea is to have a broad consultation with lots of Indigenous people across the community to help co-design the legislation to create and shape the voice. That means if the referendum is successful, it could actually be a few years before the voice is created, which is much like how under the Bob Hawke government, there was a five-year consultation period where the government talked to over 20,000 people before designing and creating ATSIC. There are some current design principles though for you, which include things like ensuring the voice is able to independently research issues and give advice to parliament. It would be elected by indigenous people instead of appointed by the government of the day and represent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in both cities and remote areas. So there you have it. The voice referendum is the result of years of consultation, discussion and requests from many different indigenous groups, leaders, politicians over several years and multiple governments to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the First Nations peoples of Australia and to give them a formal way to engage in and advise the parliament in matters relating to Indigenous affairs. Of course, no group is a monolith. Not every single Indigenous person wants this, even though it is the request and creation of many, many Indigenous people, so there is naturally going to be a lot of divided opinions about this. While it is important to address the issues of structural disadvantage, discrimination, and problems caused by the decades of the stolen generations and centuries of colonization and displacement, this up to the public collectively to decide if enshrining the voice to parliament into the constitution is an effective way to do that, or if we as a nation would prefer a different path towards reconciliation and improving the lives of indigenous people. That is the decision that all Australian voters must make when the referendum happens, because just like general elections, voting in a referendum is compulsory. I hope you're ready and already enrolled to vote, and if you've moved recently, don't forget to update your details at aec.gov.au. So I encourage you to research more, talk to people, form an opinion, and decide whether or not you will vote yes or no. Thank you so much to my supporters on Patreon. Comment down below what you would like to learn about next, and of course, share, subscribe, all those sorts of things, and I will see you next time.